I'm thrilled to be with you tonight and being able to, what always feels to me like sharing the good news. Because um, there is so much potential uh, in our nature uh, if we can, sometimes the expression is used as if we could get out of the way. But if we could simply notice the ways that our mind uh, confuses us, we, we, would, uh, we are already, we would shine, uh, shine very brightly. And as I look around the room, it's actually remarkable how bright, shiny each person is, regardless of what kind of internal process or internal drama may be rolling through your mind, <laughs> you're actually really beautiful. And uh, so I'm, I'm forever, it's kind of an inexhaustible inspiration being able to, um, to sit with you and, and talk. Um, I wanted to start tonight by reading a couple short passages and then move along a little bit in the unfolding of our, of our practice and uh, point to uh, where it is leading. And uh, I loved the way that Mark presented the instructions this morning on thoughts, where he spoke about letting your mind be like a clear, empty sky, and notice the way all of the different phenomena of your body and mind, let them, the thoughts arise like clouds passing through the sky. And notice with the sensations, with the breath, notice how everything happens of itself. It is selfless. Uh, that in, in a sensation, there's no me, there's no my. There's just the unfolding of that sensation being known in awareness. So all of the teachings point to what we call seeing through the self-illusion, seeing through the illusion that we create of a separate, independent self-existence. And we don't do that just for the sake of doing it. One is because uh, we do it for a few reasons. One, because uh, the self is an illusion. Two, because if we do, if we're able to see through the illusion of our separate individuality, we also inevitably see through the illusion of other. We increasingly recognize our sense of interbeing. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious we inter are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so that you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. This implicitly describes the the emptying of our own uh, uh, illusory sense of isolation and 
the teachings point us to uh, not just an idea of our interbeing, but a felt experience of our, um, our absolute intimacy with everyone and everything. So the, in the spirit of this process of, em- of uh, emptying, I wanted to start with a, an anonymous poem it starts with, everybody wants to be somebody. Nobody wants to be nobody. But if that somebody could just be nobody, that nobody would really be somebody. <laughs> I will speak more about this. <laughs> In a slightly more poetic flavor, the words of Hafez, he says, admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me, love me. Of course, you don't say this out loud. Otherwise, someone would call the cops. (laughs) Still, though, think about this this great pull in us to connect, why not become the one who lives with the full moon in each eye? That is always saying in that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear. Someone sent me an article about... Some, someone with a full moon in their eye who's always saying with that sweet moon language what every, uh, every other person is longing to hear. And this is an article about the Dalai Lama. And it was written, by, it was written after the uh, Sandy Hook massacre by the, mayor, uh, the former mayor of Salt Lake City, Utah. He writes... In 1997, I traveled to Dharamsala, India. My former wife, Kathy, and my sister-in-law, Mary Lee, had grown close to the Tibetan, Tibetan community that had resettled in Utah. Perhaps overly impressed with my status as a former Salt Lake City mayor, the Tibetans had arranged us to meet with the Dalai Lama and invite him to Utah. <laughs> I looked forward to meeting His Holiness, Much like any lucky tourist would, I sought no great religious transformative experience. I admired the Dalai Lama's history as an expatriate from communist China and his reputation as a man of peace. I carried letters from Governor Mike Levitt and business leaders and other documents to formally invite the great leader to Utah. I had no idea how deeply spiritual our visit would become. The meeting with His Holiness would rank as one of the most emotional, treasured moments of my life, along with the births of my children, climbing high mountain peaks, and other deeply personal experiences. As we ambled along the streets of Dharamsala, the morning of our appointment with His Holiness, we met by sheer coincidence a Utah couple. They had stayed for several days, hoping for some way to meet with the Dalai Lama. We offered to see if they might join us. 
After relaying passport numbers and other security information, they were granted permission to come along. We entered the Dalai Lama's residence, each holding a white Buddhist blessing scarf. He placed the scarves around our necks and uttered a few blessing words. We sat on comfortable couches with the holy man, surrounded by a group of muscular monks. I surmised they were a security detachment. The Dalai Lama opened with small talk, his wit and iconic smile bringing resonant laughter from the guards, a group of designated laughers, I thought with some amusement. We formally invited him to Utah, then suddenly the formality dissolved. Looking intently at the couple that had joined us that morning and with no visible cue from anyone, he said, The Dalai Lama said to them, you are sad. Our new friends broke down. Through gentle sobs, they explained their young son had recently committed suicide. A pause hung in the air. The Dalai Lama simply waited and waited. As we muffled sobs, His Holiness slid across the couch and reached for the couple's faces. Grasping their cheeks, he pulled their faces next to his. He held them for for perhaps a minute and an, an eternity for such an intimacy. And then he said softly, simply, sad. He offered no other words No assurances of heaven as we Westerners come to expect when dissecting death. He explained nothing. There was no utterance of time heals, no nicety that God needed him elsewhere, nothing. The tears ceased. And the the meeting ended. So how did the Dalai Lama do that? How does anyone do that? As Mark reminded us last night that the Dalai Lama practices many hours a day. Now the practice, the practice that the Dalai Lama is doing is not building up a spiritual muscle. He's not busy reminding himself, I am the Dalai Lama. He's not... He wasn't with that couple. He wasn't saying, he wasn't busy thinking, I'm being compassionate. What he was, was empty, was open, was present. And the face of that openness and presence is compassion, is love. We can't help ourselves when that openness meets pain. So the whole of our practice is moving from the narrow vortex, narrow vortex of our our own self um, ideas, self preoccupation, to this wider gravitational field, this wider um, understanding. Of, of the Dharma. 
Maybe you've gotten a little taste of this over the course of even these few days, but there's a, a beautiful teaching from a teacher named uh, Nishagadatta, where he says, when the mind is momentarily free of its preoccupations, you know, that happens any moment that we're mindful of, and especially if we have successive moments when we're present. When the mind is temporarily free of its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. And if you don't disturb that quiet and you stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love. You've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own natural state, your own nature. Once you've tasted this, you will never be the same. He, he, this is what he says. Once you've tasted this, you'll never be the same person again. He's, uh, he's keeps it real, though. He says the unruly mind will break that peace and obliterate that vision. <laughs> but it's bound to return if the effort is sustained till all bonds are broken, grasping, fixation, attachment ends, and life becomes supremely concentrated in the present. In other words, we, like the Dalai Lama, meet situations with uh, this deepening, this deeper capacity to resonate, to feel connected, to love. And in order to do that, in order to bring that peace, it's, I felt as I read this, just the radiation, the transmission of peace that the Dalai Lama, in order to bring that peace, uh, one cannot be busy uh, being somebody. You have to be what you are naturally. What you are naturally is it's not even, it's actually too much to say you're nobody. You are undefinable. You just have to be open. Try experiencing it for a moment, not being defined by any label. There's a sutra called the, from the Mahayana tradition called the Avatamsaka Sutta, where it says, having no view of self one is always peaceful. So we can see that what often disturbs our peace, which I think, I think Spring shared the words of Noshul Ken Rinpoche. She shared the, the passage, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by karma and neurotic thought. I find that, that first line very interesting, rest in natural great peace. It does, she doesn't, he doesn't say rest in constructed peace, created peace. He says rest in natural great peace, that peace is natural to us. It's what shines through after your last idea of yourself has ceased and before the next one comes. Or it shines through even when you're noticing the thoughts arising and passing, as Mark shared this morning. 
that knowing is always peaceful. Peacefully knowing madness, peacefully knowing joy, peacefully knowing ease, calm, agitation, all the experiences that flow through our consciousness. But without a view of that being me and mine, there's always this peace available, open, inviting, and comfortable. So again, just sense. We'll just hang out a little tonight and explore. Since, since we've been just marinating in silence for a few days, perhaps the you're beginning to get the fragrance of, the, of your inner silence. And you may, we talked about groundedness the other day, and, and of course the first part of our practice is to ground in our body, to have our mind in the same location of our body. And that bringing our mind and body together brings a certain kind of harmony. But the more we begin to recognize this natural great peace, this natural silence, we realize that that is immovable. That's the true ground. That's the Buddha in you. That's why the poet Ryokan says, Buddha is your mind and the way goes nowhere. Don't look for anything but this. If you point your cart north, when you want to go south, how will you arrive? Buddha is your mind. And the way goes nowhere. Right in the middle of it all. So we can hang out and check out what you experience. What do you experience after? The best way to exper- experiment with it together is to just sense what your experience is here after your last thought has passed and before the next one arises. What, what becomes, what would you say about your experience when you do that? Anybody willing to speak into the silence? It's quiet. It's quiet. Anyone else? After your last thought has ceased, before the next one comes. Empty. Spacious. Spacious. Comfortable. Comfortable. Peaceful. Peaceful. Any suffering? (laughs) As a teacher, uh, Punjaji, that Mark spoke about last night, he said, you need the past and thoughts to suffer. You don't need anything to be free. The boulders of the past rest on your chest and inhibit your life and your freedom. So he says, look at those, look at the origin of those thoughts, not historical origin. Look at their nature. Look, look how they emerge out of, like clouds, with no roots, no home. So that shift from being from being caught, absorbed in our thoughts to noticing 
these thoughts of the past, we see that there, there's not much there. So many, most of you, when, you, when I asked you, you talked about peace or spaciousness or ease or empty. Isn't this what we long for? And how far did you have to travel to find it? This is, it's home base. It's, it's you already. As this one Tibetan teacher says, says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. So we can sense that a little bit after we sat for a few days. That, um, as one way of talking about it is that you, you are what, you're, what you've been looking for. As Tibetan teacher named Kala Rinpoche says, truth is here, even in this very room. Truth is you. The silence, infinity is in you. You are the silence. You are the truth. You are the Buddha. It's here in this very moment, so simple and unaffected, so near. Yet we make it so distant when it's so near. So remote when it's so immediate. So complicated when it's so simple. You are the Buddha. Why don't you feel it? Why don't you know it utterly, through and through? Because there is a veil which is the attached to appearances such as the belief that you're not the Buddha, that you are a separate individual. But if you've seen through it totally just once, this veil, then you can see through it all the time. Wherever you are, whatever presents itself, however things seem to be, simply refer to that ever-present, inherent spaciousness, openness, and clarity. Rumi says, why do you stay in prison when the door is so wide open? Come out of the tangle of, of your fear thinking. He says, live in silence. You're doing it. Flow down and down and down in ever-widening rings of being. So we naturally, even though we put this gentle focus on the one-pointedness, the one point that is right here, the inevitable effect of that is we start to sense what the concept in the Buddha's teaching is called ekagata. We sense this one-pointedness, but the deeper meaning of the word ekagata is the one point that includes everything. We start to feel that wider sense. The door is so wide open. So where's when your mind is quiet for a moment, after the last thought has ceased before the next arises? Where's the inside and where's the outside? Where's the separation between all of us in that immediacy? The Buddha was called Tathagata. The Buddha was called the one who knows such, Tata means suchness. The one who knows that sense of just beingness, isness, 
just the no separation. And we can begin to taste that, that non-separateness as we sit together. So when we have these moments, when there is, our thoughts have passed and before the next one comes, there's a kind of vivid clarity. We begin to sense that as that passage I read, that light, that light that reflects everything more clearly, that light and that love, that feeling of connection. As soon as I'm really connected here with you, and I'm not looking back and I'm not looking ahead, I, I start to feel that kind of um, affinity and curiosity and interest and, and love. It makes me want to eat you all up. <laughs> it's a strange feeling. <laughs> I think that's just what our hearts want to do. Maybe it sounds a little creepy, but <laughs> it's just this is available. This this flow of affection is available to us. It's the face of openness. It's the face of presence. But as a teacher named Dujim Rinpoche said, we don't stay there. We don't stay here. He says, isn't it true that a thought suddenly arises? (laughs) He says, if that thought is recognized, we see that it's, it's just another expression of the openness of our heart and mind. And it self liberates. But if it goes unnoticed, that thought spreads out into ordinary thinking, which we've talked a lot about discursive thinking, which he calls the chain of delusion. Because when these thoughts go unnoticed, and who is the central character in the thoughts? I, me, and mine. We literally, when we follow those thoughts, don't actually recognize that we're thinking and see them as just an expression of awareness just as a sound is an expression of awareness or a felt experience in our body, when we follow those thoughts and mindfulness doesn't spring up to meet that thought, doesn't go along for the ride, we literally take birth into the thought of what I like to call the imagined me. The virtual me. We enter into, we've been talking a lot about the stories. We enter into the story of myself. And once we are born into that story, we have, uh, we've actually uh, lost contact with reality. We've, our body actually manifests that, the effect of having disconnected by tightening up, getting anxious, getting dull. Because the reality is very vital, very alive. And once we enter into the world of thoughts, we're 
our thoughts are of the past or of the imagined future, as Mark was saying, the thoughts of time. Isn't it amazing, as he was describing all the dramas that play through our mind, we can travel the world. It's an amazing thing that we can think and plan and vision and all that. And we're sitting here, nothing has actually happened. Nothing has happened. And yet it seems like high drama on the, on the, in the theater of our inner war. <laughs> but nothing happened. Except our mind traveled into these virtual worlds of the imagined me. Mostly with the central character being not you. Not you, not the you that sits here and is indescribable and is beautiful and vast and unfathomable, really. A miracle, a creative expression of life. That's not what plays itself out. But the, but the imaginary version of yourself, the, the one who doesn't actually even exist. That one has been created clearly by all the influences and the circumstances of your life. Formed just like your body has been by, by, uh, by culture and circumstances and, and religion and race and all of that. And our, our thought forms have, have developed around that. But nevertheless, that story about yourself is not yourself. As one of my, the teacher I spoke of the other night, you may not remember, but I talked about Anagarka Munindra. He had a very classic line where he said, a thought of your mother is not your mother. (laughs) The first time I heard that, that was a revelation. (laughs) Because I could literally... And it's an amazing thing that I can reflect on my mother and I can right now and I can actually feel her. But a thought of my mother is not my mother. And the same is true about myself. A thought of myself is not myself. It's a bubble. It's a phantom. It's, it's like a dream. If these thoughts of ourself are noticed. And this is, the, this is the liberating effect of our practice as we move from being encapsulated, secluded in this little narrow vortex of our imagined self. We move to that wider view of being able to say, oh, this is, here's my story. People came into interviews today. It was beautiful hearing them say, well, that was my story. I, this is the story that was running. So already there's a little space in the mind. To be able to see, oh, that's, that story is not, not myself. This is not me, not mine. This I am not. You may not have been thinking about it that way, but there was that little space to see, oh, that thought of myself is not myself. It's just thinking itself, as Mark was saying this morning. It is its own thinker. But it's when these thoughts go unnoticed, and this is why it is so useful to practice to be able to, to more and more frequently, two things, more know, more know more and more that you, as you are, are not defined by your thoughts. And you get more intimate with the actuality of your being. As 
the, what's his, John J. Audubon put it, he says, if there's a difference between the bird and what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. (laughs) What you're beginning to do is saturate, marinate in your in your suchness, in your indefinable nature. So here in living color, with, with consciousness, with all those qualities that flow from that openness. But you're, you're not really uh, reducible to these little, this very limited version of yourself that plays in your mind. So one is getting used to getting familiar with and used to the simple presence, your natural state. And the other half is becoming much more discerning about the not-self nature of, of the thoughts about yourself. Appreciating them, enjoying them, appreciating them and how you came to have the story that you do, the stories that you do, the views that you do, the attachments that you do, the, the, um, the irritations that you have, seeing how they've been formed by circumstances, non-personal circumstances, see how they are selfless in that way. They've come together, how each of us has been formed by... from beginningless time. I always get a little um, in awe when I think about how what had to happen for us to be here tonight. And how us being here tonight absolutely has no beginning. And And it has no separation from those birds all the insects, all the smiles, all the frowns, all the wars, all the, all the division, all the unity, everything that has ever happened conspired to bring us here at this point. Not one of us exists apart from that. So the stories that play through our mind are, are born of the same circumstance, circumstances. But when we live in those stories disconnect from the the living reality, enter into that virtual reality, we are often carried along in a a state of contraction and and constriction. As the teacher Nagarjuna put it in his poem that's very ancient called Someone, he says, blocked by confusion... I survive by forging a destiny through impulsive acts. Self-consciously, I enter situations where personality unfolds and world impacts on my sensitive soul. Personality creates self-consciousness just as attention, the eye, and colorful shape trigger vision. Impact is the meeting of self-consciousness, senses, and the world that leads to experience I crave to have and to avoid. Craving 
makes me cling to sensuality, opinions, rules, and selves. Clinging is to insist on being someone. Not to cling is to be free to be no one. To be someone is to be self-conscious, impulsive, thinking, feeling, body, which is born, ages, dies, suffers torment, grief, pain, depression, anxiety. Anguish emerges when we are born into these views about ourselves. Impulsive acts are the root of life. Fools are impulsive, but the wise see things as they are. When confusion stops through practicing insight, impulsive acts cease. By stopping this, that won't happen. Anguish will end. So the wise see things as they are. When we see a story of ourself is not self, it is what the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. It's a view. It's an opinion. It's an idea. It's a story. A story of yourself is not yourself. And when you see this, you, as Mark used the metaphor, you get off the train. You don't jump on the train. Because once you're born into one of these internal dramas, I don't know why I'm having this. This always comes up when I give Dharma talks like this. In my um, early years in San Francisco, I lived on uh, 24th or 20th and Dolores Street in the city. I don't know how many of you know that neighborhood. But I lived on the third floor of an apartment building, no elevator, and I would have to go up a, many, many flights of stairs. And I had, when I moved to San Francisco, I bought this wonderful down comforter from Eddie Bauer. In those days, they sold comforters. And I loved in the evening to crawl under the comforter, read a little Dharma, and then drift off to sleep. And one night, when there was an absence of moment-to-moment mindfulness, a thought came into my mind of my favorite ice cream parlor on 24th Street, called Double Rainbow. (laughs) The thought of Double Rainbow triggered a feeling of pleasure. And then, as this passage says, craving makes me cling to sensuality, opinion, rules. I cling to the sensuality of that. The pleasure triggered liking. Liking triggered wanting, and the pressure of that wanting then sparked a whole internal dialogue. I, the thought of I, remember nothing's happened really. (laughs) I want an ice cream cone. And because I wasn't being so mindful, I incarnated in the view that I'm the one who wants the ice cream cone. Not recognizing it. Oh, there's the story going through my mind. And before you know it, my body conformed to whatever the thought was like. And I was out of my beautiful comforter, on with the pants, down the several flights of stairs, 
several blocks away to the, to the ice cream parlor, to the double rainbow ice cream parlor, in a state of frenzy, in a state of, whenever we're incarnated in one of those dreams, in a state of suspended happiness. I can't be happy until I have the ice cream cone. Went to the counter, got the ice cream cone, and it was a very gray night in San Francisco, a little drizzly. I stood outside, took one lick, and that life was over. That lifetime, that mini lifetime ended. And there I was, once again, after having had the pleasure of satisfying that hunger, felt the cessation of the desire, but then I felt the emptiness. I felt the embarrassment, the self-consciousness of having been dragged by a thought out of a perfectly comfortable situation. And I felt shaken, shaky and insecure. Who am I now? And we don't usually hang out with that sense of, of... being, having been pulled into virtual reality, what do we ordinarily do? Our mind doesn't hang out and ground in that sense of aware presence. What we do is we immediately, because the wake of that, having satisfied that desire, triggers the arising of another one. Because that's how you fill the hole, is you keep the desires going, as we talked about the other night. So I, ha- I could give you a hundred examples of having been fallen completely into delusion. And this is very mild. But we can, it, we can enter into situations that, are, that have a much more painful result by not knowing our mind, not being able to have that space of discernment, that space of choice, to move toward uh, the wholesome desires, as we talked about. So when the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, as, as I talked about the other night, and he saw the luminosity of the mind and how everything was reflected so clearly, saw the arising and passing, saw the selflessness of everything, saw the unreliability of anything that changes, He, his mind opened, no longer deluded by whatever his, that virtual view of himself, and he got assaulted by all the temptations of the mind and all the doubts. And, and then he touched the earth, used the earth as his resource when the strongest doubts came. And then he was able to, he was able to hold his seat and, and gain some confidence that he was not, um, that he was, that his nature is free. It's not defined by those little narratives going through the mind. And then as beings who awaken often do, he let out a song. And that the song he let out was... Um, I'll just share the words. He says, through many births. So just think about how I was born into that little drama. 
He says, through many births in the wandering on, I ran seeking but not finding the maker of that whole house. Oh, um, oh house builder, you've been seen. Dukkha, unsatisfactoriness. Dukkha is birth again and again. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build another house. I would amend that. You will build many houses, but you will notice yourself building houses. But in his case, he, he had the lion's roar of, of having kind of eradicated the, even the impulse to become misidentified with his thoughts. He said, oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, which is considered um, uh, defilements of the mind. The ridgepole destroyed, which is ignorance, confusion. Uh, My mind gone to the unconditioned, to the unconstructed, free, to cravings, cessation, it's come. Not, Not pulled anymore. So as long as we're pulled, it's a very useful thing to remain um, active in our practice. To get to know uh, the, the beauty that we are when we are present. To get to know the, the richness of our hearts, our capacity, our clarity, our openness, our vastness, our intelligence, all that gets bound up and occluded when we are constantly being dragged by uh, our imagination. This is why it's so useful to notice the thinking mind. And not just to notice the thinking mind, and not just to notice the top tunes, but to see how the top tunes that our mind plays, how, when we get caught, how much we are tormented by it. One example. The comparing mind, what the Buddha called mana or conceit, the, otherwise known as the comparing mind in the teaching. It's the, the, the identity view that comes into your mind that you are, I'm, I know that you had several of these, even today, the view that you are greater than, and this could be your, your body, your mind, your thoughts, your career, your whatever it is, you're better than or greater than. It's called atimana. It's the superiority view where you compare yourself favorably to others. Any of you ever do that? <laughs> and, the, uh, and what's called mana, which is the equality view. I'm equal to others. Kind of measuring, making sure that I'm equal. I'm as good as them. And then the one that I think many of us, I don't know why Westerners are so plagued by this, but it's the, what's called amana, which is the inferiority view. I'm less than. Not enough. Insufficient. And it's often in comparison to someone else. Some, either someone else or some ideal. Many, of course, have studied this tendency to 
create an identity that is compo- that's comparable to someone else. Now, when you're really present, when I'm really present with you, you're really present with me, is anyone here really comparable, comparable in reality? Isn't everyone just an exact, unique expression of life that couldn't be any other than, way than you are, that it just, just here. But yet, these thoughts enter our mind and all of a sudden we feel small, feel terrible. Feel terrible about ourselves and then that creates a contraction and then we feel terrible about everyone else. Then we're competing. Even in the Hasidic tradition, there are stories about the comparing mind. This is one from a story. One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. (laughs) Then the Seamus, who's the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. (laughs) Or the level of absurdity that the comparing mind gets to. And this one is... I I didn't think I would read it again. I've read it so many times, but here it is. In June, after the British musical group, The Planets, introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who wrote 4 minutes 33 seconds, which is 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group for ripping Cage off, (laughs) but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought it had been pilfered. (laughs) Said Mike Batt of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. So the beauty of being able to make that shift from being carried along by the comparisons and the judgments and the self-views, the, the story of ourself, is to be able to see for ourselves with the eye of wisdom uh, the pain of that and to 
naturally in the face of that pain to respond with, with mercy and kindness. When we're incarnated in those stories, we, we are, we're blind. We don't even realize that we're like caged animals. We are bound, uh, caught in a state of, of suspended happiness, a state of dependent happiness. Because our mind is forever measuring. As, as Rumi put it in one of his poems, he said, he said, live in the nowhere where you came from, even though you have an address here. That's the story. You have eyes that see from nowhere, and you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops, and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller, checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the one where you're not selling fish hooks anymore. You are the free swimming fish. So the more we get to know the free swimming fish, the more painful it becomes to get caught in our comparing mind. And this is actually good news because that's how our feelings that grow out of our misidentification, that's how they become the cause of of compassion. And we see how painful it is to be in a, a state of delusion. And hopefully that compassion becomes the cause for wanting to wake up. To, as I read the other night, to learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that give us a moment of pleasure but then drag us for days like a broken person behind a farting camel. Be able to learn to recognize uh, that a story of ourself is not ourself. And often our and our story is often identified and connected to our body, and our body is always changing. So we're so our identities are very insecure. Our stories are defined by thoughts, and thoughts are as ephemeral as the world. They're defined by our identities are defined by time. And time is always running out, and that's why we're anxious. If our well-being is about getting somewhere, becoming someone, which is all about going from the past on our way through the present, on our way to the future. That's just a story. We never leave here. So these identity views, Sakaya Ditti, makes us very shaky when we don't know it. And so if we can open to our insecurities, our vulnerability of... of, um, being dragged by this virtual reality, instead of building a new monument to the past or to the future, instead, we ground ourselves in aware presence. And we step off of that wheel, we step off of the train and see and let the, and kiss the thoughts as they fly. And then we can, as Derek Walcott says, 
we can, we can love again. It says, the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelves, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Let's just stay quiet for a moment. Don't have to move unless you want to. There's a chant I'd like to end with that, that speaks of the, of the merging of wisdom and love. It's from the words of a Hindu teacher named Neem Karoli Baba and put to music by Jai, Jai Utal. It goes like this. I am like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home, all are my family. I live in every heart, I will never leave thee. Oh, crystal tears, oh, taking away my fears. I'm like the wind, no one can hold me. I belong to everyone, no one can own me. The whole world is my home. All are my family. So the face of openness is love. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.